Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest is Bikran Sandhu. He's the COO and CFO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity out in Phoenix. You may have heard of them. They, uh, if you're in this space, they've, they've grown, uh, they've done 37 deals uh, on the acquisition side in Phoenix. They've gone full cycle on 11 of those. And so obviously they're buying a lot of deals. They've built their property management company to over hundred employees and have really built the whole multifamily vertically integrated thing in one market. Uh, not unlike what we've done in San Antonio. So it was great to talk shop with Bikran and just talk about the highs and the lows and the building the company, especially with you know market conditions. They started buying stuff in 2019. So they got to see COVID and the ups and downs there. They've And then the current uh, high interest rate environment that we're in, they're talking about their strategies on that. They've done really well for investors on the deals they've gone full cycle. So um, it's just great to kind of peel back the curtain there and see the details of how they've built that company and how they how they structure things and what they are thinking about the current market. So you're going to enjoy this podcast. Before we jump in, two quick notes. If you're not seeing DJE projects hit your inbox for your review and you would like to, you can sign up and join our investor group at djetexas.com. There's also a link in the show notes in this podcast episode. You can click through and get set up with case studies and see projects we've done. And secondly, if you are interested in becoming a apartment investor and going out and running your own deals, we created apartmenteducators.com as a full ecosystem to get you to that. So we're doing events in cities across the country. There's hundreds of people at these events. Our members are doing 10, 20, $30 million deals and closing those from the acquisition underwriting to buying, operating, exiting the whole thing. If that's something that feels like it's a good next step or something you want to explore, apartmenteducators.com has some great free resources to get you started there. Check that out. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Bikran. Here we go. Bikran, hello. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well, Devin. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thank you. Um, would love to learn what you guys are up to right now in your market with multifamily. I want to get into all that and unpack all that. Before we do, uh, let's let's learn a little bit about you, your backstory, You know how you came to real estate. I always like to hear people's journey of how they got into this business. Yeah, of course, uh, and and thanks thanks for having me, Devin. Really appreciate it. Uh, uh, really appreciate being on your pod podcast. Um, yeah, so you know my background is in uh, accounting and finance. So uh, I graduated uh, UC Irvine in California back in uh, 2012, and uh, since then, you know, I was I was doing auditing back then. So I, I used to be an external auditor with uh, Grant Thornton, and then with PwC, uh, really kind of you know went out and uh, looked at company financials for the large. Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies uh, made sure you know their books were complete and accurate before they, uh, uh, I guess, uh, posted and you know reported to the to the public. Um, did that for about three and a half, four years, and then moved into 
um, management consulting uh, with CNM, which is again a local accounting consulting firm in California. And you know, my job there was primarily to uh, again review books and records uh, for the different companies and and help companies buy other companies, sell divisions, go through restructurings, um, really kind of do the transactional level work, as well as kind of help companies make sure they have the right controls in place and, and you know that they're not that they're able to catch fraud or errors. Uh, appropriately. Um, so in, in that time frame, about eight years total, um, really started getting into a little bit of real estate here and there. You know, I had a couple of real estate clients and kind of piqued my interest on in how they did, you know, their work and how they made money. And as an sure. auditor, you know, you get a lot of insight into a company, like everything from the ground up, you know, we get to go in and see how everybody does their job. And ultimately, how does that trickle up all the way to the board of directors? Um, and real estate always kind of had um, interest, in, interest in me. So in, in 20, uh, 2018, 2019 timeframe, uh, my now wife, then girlfriend and I uh, started, uh, you know, looking at uh, different types of real estate, like single family, multifamily, self-storage, uh, uh, industrial, et cetera. Um, and really, you know, we kept kept getting drawn to multifamily. Uh, we liked the the idea that, you know, you can buy one property with, you know, 100 plus units. So if you have a vacancy at one unit, it's not going to tank your entire month. Um, and, you know, everybody needs a place to live. So we thought it's a great, uh, great investment. So I uh, really started kind of diving into it at that point. And, um, yeah, you know, I kept running numbers, you know, on different uh, types of uh, multifamily or different types of real estate in general. And everything just kept coming back to like, you know, workforce housing, class B multifamily over and over. So we just said, hey, you know, let's pick a couple of markets and then just start going out there and then start meeting people. So that's how we got into uh, real estate. I love it. Thanks for the backstory. I appreciate that. And um, the finance background has, has no doubt, no doubt helped uh, in this, yeah. in this business. Were you in Phoenix for uh, when you were, when you started your multifamily search, were you already in that market? No, actually we, we, we were still in California. So uh, you know, we've always heard you want to be in tenant. Uh, you don't want to be in tenant friendly locations anymore. Landlord, big business yeah. or business friendly location. So uh, you know, we, we, we started identifying key markets based on um, population growth, job growth, uh, you know, the economic growth of the different locations and really kind of pinpointed at the time it was, you know, Phoenix, Dallas, Austin, and then Tampa Bay area. Um, and uh, at the time, you know, we didn't want to travel across country to look at a look at a property that we're going to bid on and not knowing the lo you know local area it was it was going to be very tough. Sure. Um, and uh, slowly kind of, you know, uh, pulled back on our, our key markets that we wanted to go into. And and Phoenix, you know, we were always kind of interested in Phoenix. Uh, we always knew about the, you know, the 08, 09 bus that happened. Um, but uh, you always, you know, you want to make sure you underwrite conservatively at the end of the day. And every every deal out there has a price that makes sense, you know. So you just gotta, we want to make sure you're in the right market and, and right location uh, at the end of the day. So, uh Long story short, we weren't in Phoenix, but we were doing a lot of research based on governmental data to see like what, you know, markets to be in. Right, right. Yeah, Phoenix has uh, been a very interesting market. So when did you guys, what year did you guys start buying properties in, in Phoenix market? Yeah, so we, you know, we started in actually the first deal we bought was in February of 2019. It was 36 units. And uh, at the time, you know, we didn't know 
what type of deals to get into. We didn't know if we wanted to do value add, you know, classic hold and wait for 10 years and sell type of deals sure. or, you know, any, anything else, you know. So we uh, we actually met uh, our partners, Zach Haftenstall and Robert Shevchik in, in late 2018, early 2019. And they had a deal under contract at the time and they were short a few hundred thousand dollars. So we came in as like the third uh, um or I guess the fourth uh, partner in their deal. Right. And it was kind of in common. So, you know, we didn't have investors or anything. It was really uh, the uh, Zach, Robert, and then uh, another partner of ours. And then, and then myself kind of in that deal. And the, the entire concept was, Hey, we're going to do, we're going to buy a sixties or a fifties property. Um, it's not performing at market. We know, you know, the renovations we need to do. We know the market rents that it can achieve. And then if we do execute our plan, you know, we can get, get out of the deal in 18 to 36 months. So this very first deal that we did in February of 19, um, you know, really taught us a lot about value add and, and property management in general, because um, less than, you know, 80 units, it's kind of hard to have a full site on site PM. So you have to kind of do a lot of the uh, handholding along the way. Sure. Um, and I was, you know, helping run some of the financials for the property. So that was fun. Uh, so you really <laughs> learn a lot um, there. But uh, yeah, no, that was our first deal we bought. That was a value add. You know, we we sold that in about 18 months and got to around a 1.91 equity multiple uh, amongst the, the four of us. Yeah, that's great. Tenants in common, nice, simple partnership structure, great return, short turnaround. Were the financials a mess at takeover? Did you just have to kind of make assumptions of what your yeah. pro forma was going to be? Sometimes you got to just wipe the slate clean, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, was, it wasn't too bad. You know, prior to us coming in, they were managed by a third-party PM, but the owner was out of state. You know, they kind of just uh, were just cash flowing it. So, their books weren't as clean as they should have been. Um, sure. So when we came in, you know, we had to kind of make some assumptions on uh, what type of like maintenance expenses to expect or turnover or, you know, administrative expenses to expect. Uh, but um, yeah, no, overall, I think that the biggest thing was uh, the PM that we worked with, you know, there were more single families, some multifamily, like four units, eight units types of uh, uh, buildings is what they managed. So right. when we brought over like a 36 unit, you know, it was, um, it was definitely a bigger project for them. Right. Um, so we were kind of helping them along the way. And, and, you know, my background um I'm looking at, you know, large Fortune 100 companies and how they're doing gap accrual accounting. And, um, you know, on single family homes, it's not <laughs> it's not at that stature. Right. So right. you kind of have to meet halfway in. So we were kind of helping them do books, you know, with the cash basis accounting and, and trying to get that uh, up and running. But it was just difficult because, you know, when people don't know the right type of accounting, it's hard to kind of get there. So you almost have to hold their hands along the way. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, what a big difference from the stuff that you were auditing uh, for public companies to to this. Although, I mean, it doesn't hold a candle to the stuff you're auditing. But a large multifamily property's got a that's got a lot big, a lot of GL codes, a lot big big yeah. uh, big P and L. You know, you might have to scroll down a couple of pages to to get to your yeah. NOI. Um, so so the partnership went well. You know, yeah. what was what was the consensus or the feeling among the group? after you'd had that success? Because it's one thing to go to these seminars and look at underwriting and think about how a deal's going to pencil. It's quite another, as you know, to take a deal full cycle, quite yeah. another thing. Oh, yeah. um, but you had done that and seen success with that. And, and what was, you know, how were you guys feeling at that point? And what, and what was next? 
Yeah, no, I think uh, the timing of it was definitely important, right? So as you know, you know, in March, 2020, COVID hit and then, you know, the entire country just kind of shut down. Right. And we sold the deal in October of 2020. So um, it, it was important for us to kind of go. That was the first deal we went full cycle on. It was extremely important for us to to do that because we've now proven out the value add strategy, you know, amongst right. ourselves and amongst our investor base that we that we've been consistently working with. Sure. And being that it was like a very at the, at the time, you know, it was a very uh, skittish market. You know, not a lot of deals were happening. And we were able to sell a deal and get to a 1.91 equity multiple without any major issues. Um, that was really important. It really kind of helped kickstart, you know, our ability to buy bigger and bigger deals. Right. Uh, you know, before um, October of 20, uh, 2020, we had bought, uh, I believe, three, three, three additional deals. So as we, we bought the first one in February, then bought uh, three more. So we bought four more. Uh, we bought three more in August of 2019. Uh, because we had identified uh, partners to work with, you know, that had been doing value at multifamily and we were going to be the boots on the ground. And then in March of 2020, we bought our fourth deal after uh, the first one. So um, they were all, you know, value add, great, great, great pieces of assets. And then um, obviously COVID hit, you know, we were, we had five deals under, under management at the time and we were just kind of um, everyone was saying, you know, this guy's going to fall on multifamily. There's an right. eviction moratorium. You're not going to collect rents, you know, run for the run for the fields or whatever. But, uh, you know, we we kept our head in the in the details. We we made sure all our assets performed. We continued doing distributions amongst all the assets and uh, didn't didn't miss a beat on any of our projects. And, uh, you know, starting in October, we sold that first deal and it was a relief. You know, we we. Right. Uh, gone full cycle we've proven the strategy and and now when we go out to market you know with with newer deals coming out we can tell investors like you know it's not just like a theory like we've actually proven it out we know what to do and now we just have to scale up yes it's absolutely proof of work there's no substitute for it you can run all the models you want which are always wrong and uh nothing like a full cycle deal to point oh, yeah. to to, to solidify kind of that next level as a yep. sponsor. So after that first deal, you, you started getting into more deals in 2019. What, what was the, what was the profile of those properties, the size, you know, the class, yep. you know, the value add, but what, what kind of assets were they? Yeah, no, they were all value add, you know, workforce housing. I, I, I mean, I'm not uh, big on ba not bad locations, but like class C locations. I think it's, we definitely bought some deals in, in that area uh, just because right. the market was doing well. And, and we thought, you know, nothing can touch us, you know, where we know what we're buying. We know our, our methodology. And, and I can tell you, you know, if the market had tanked at that time, you know, we could have been in trouble for a couple of deals because they weren't really bad, not bad, really bad, but like kind of in a bad locations overall. Sure. Um, like if you look at, you know, when a class A through D, a couple of the, the deals were close to like a class C location that we had. But, uh, you know, overall, our, our biggest thing was um, we know we're buying workforce housing. We know we have to keep a very close eye on the operations. And that's what we did. So uh, all in all, uh, you know, as we're buying these deals, uh, we wanted to make sure that we're, we're buying right. Uh, we're not hoping that cash flow increases so that that's what we're going to use to renovate the products. We're going to raise all the capex up front. Yes, and um, make sure that we have ample reserves. And and I can't stress that enough. You know, a lot of the companies we've seen, um, or when I went through an, an audit, you know, when companies are going through restructurings, the biggest thing was 
they didn't have cash flow. They didn't have reserves in place. So when, you know, payroll hits, like the, the, the owner is literally putting in money into the, wow. into the company to, right. to make it work. And yep. you could literally go out of business the next day. So um, I, in my underwriting, I'm always uh, hesitant to go out, buy a deal. And then, you know, um, after close of escrow, we have $500 in the property account. Like that right. is not a place to be, right? So uh, we always raise ample reserves, uh, but that's, that's the type of things we started learning was, uh, hey, we want to buy, uh, you know, quality assets, you know, in somewhat good locations at the very least and and have reserves. Like it's going to it's gonna delay our exit a little bit because now we have to pay a return on that reserve. Right. But uh, it's always better to have reserves than just, you know, do a capital call two months down the road because you forgot to raise for prepaid taxes. That's such a, yeah, that's such a black eye on the, on the partnership. If you have to go out and do a capital call, uh, it's such a balancing act too, for, for us that are running deals. I mean, you know, the equity is like, might be 20%, you know, 25%, 40% if the deal does really well. And so that's really yeah. expensive capital. You kind of don't want to raise one more dollar than you have to, but the yeah. alternative of being underfunded is worse. Yep. So it, it's it's a balancing act. And a lot of times you go into these things with some assumptions around how many months of operating capital you need reserves and how much you need for to fund your draws before you can, you know, get the, the distribution from the bank. But business plan changes too, you know, after you close. And um, we've seen a lot of disruption these last couple of years with supply chains and labor and uh, cost of materials. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of fluctuations. So what I tell people just the, the most you can, the most you can stomach, right? Raise all the money to, till you break the model and, and, yep. uh, you know, that's good, but it's, it is balancing act because, uh, you, you, you've got to pay out it's equity. It's expensive. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I don't want to raise one more dime than I absolutely needed. And, but you know, in, in this day and age, it's, you want to be careful. You, you don't want to end up, uh, uh, you know, with very little capital in your bank. Right. And I think, you know, we're speaking right now in uh, Q4 of 2022, very interesting stuff with the Fed, inflation, et cetera. You know, I think there's probably um, going to be some properties that just, and owners that just lose their properties, you know, with, with uh, oh, yeah. variable debt going up. And we've, we've got some of those assets, right, where our debt service yep. has gone up $20,000, $25,000 a month. Um, oh, yeah. And so, you know, that that's going to, that's going to crush some people along the way, which which creates opportunity, but uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting year ahead as, as we kind of weather this storm on the, on the rate hikes, how has that been for you guys on, you know, on the operations level and then on the acquisitions level as well? What is, what is yeah. kind of the, the thesis right now for you guys? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, from an operations perspective, um, let me talk about before, you know, NOI and then after debt service. So NOI, at the NOI level, you know, we really haven't seen a lot of disruption from like operational expenses or, or, or releasing out units. I think the major issue has always been for the past couple of years, at least staffing. Uh, you know, when you have the right people in place, the properties are going to do, be do better. Like it's just, it, it doesn't matter if the, you know, the, um, the overall market's going down a little bit. The, if you have the right staff in place, they know how to keep the right tenant base. They know how to collect rents. And it's always hard to find those, you know, the people that are good staffing at the end of the day. So we've, uh, you know, we really focused as, as we grew our own uh, 
our own management company, you know, the biggest thing we focus on is trying to find the right staff. Yes. So that we are bu buying workforce housing. You know, this is not class AA where you go into the office at 10, leave at four, all the money is essentially ACH'd over on a monthly basis. And it is does require a little bit of uh, work. So operationally, you know, I think our assets are not, are, they're doing well. Um, there's no major issues. The issues are related to staffing where we do have issues, but uh, uh, we haven't seen any major issues there. Debt service wise, you know, we bought uh, the deals we bought in 2021 and, and the first half of 2022, they were on bridge debt. Uh, so, you know, we, we have loans where um, the, the rate is uh, variable and then CapEx is funded upon, um, you know, actual expenses incurred. So, with, with regards to variable debt, you know, we always buy interest rate caps. So uh, I think as of right now, all, I think most of our caps have kicked in so that now when we go over, you know, when we have to pay mortgages, our caps are paying a portion of that mortgage. And that right. does help. You know, you want to make sure you have that uh, protection on the back end. And, uh, 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 you know, from a debt service perspective, I, I want to say I went to like four or five different seminars last year uh, where, you know, lenders were talking about interest rates and where they're going to go. I, I swear, I, I didn't hear one person say, hey, interest rates are going to go up two, 300 basis points next year. So be careful. Nope. I think everyone was, hey, you know, the Fed may increase about 25 basis points here or there, but we have no indication interest rates are going to go up. So obviously that's not how it's playing out right now. Uh, but, you know, uh, at the time, caps didn't cost a million dollars to buy. They cost right. $20,000, Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, with regards to variable rate debt, you know, we have seen some crunching of the cash flow, uh, compression of the cash flow. You know, sure. we have our reserves in place, so we can do distributions. We don't have issues there. But, uh, you know, with, with cash flow um, being compressed at the just on a monthly basis, we are, you know, going to miss our target because we didn't expect interest rates to go up. We we typically underwrote around 100 to 200 basis point increases in interest rates in general. Uh, but with the Fed increasing about 300 basis points in six months, it, it's really, you know, you weren't going to make any deal work and no one was going to buy anything if that was going to happen. That's right. Um, so, you know, from a debt service side, yeah, cash flow has compressed, but, you know, we're still good on our end. Uh, most of our deals are, are cash flow positive. There are some that are negative, but they are value adds. So we are at, uh, doing our strategy. They are going to turn around. And then, um, yeah, from an acquisitions front, you know, we're, we're being very conservative on acquisitions. Um, you know, we're underwriting to Freddie Mac standards right now uh, with variable rate loans. And I'll come back to why we do variable rate. Uh, but uh, yeah, we uh, we're underwriting with Freddie Mac, and I think our typical our typical LTV last year was around sixty five to seventy five percent LTV. So if you bought something for ten million, you know we had a loan of about six and a half to seven and a half million. <clears throat> this year, I think with Freddie Mac, it's closer to around fifty to fifty five percent LTV. Which makes you know some deals not pencil at all. You know, sure. so you have to be very careful. And um, and uh, you know with those deals, you know we're we're being very picky. Uh, we're not buying in you know bad locations, obviously, but we also want to make sure there's value add so that if the market does stop going up, we we actually have value that we can force into the deal. It's not so much we're hoping the market goes up. So um, yeah, all in all, you know 
compression of the cash flows on the front end when we have the deal. And on the underwriting side, we're making sure that, you know, we're underwriting conservatively with Freddie Mac uh, floating rate debt. Um, and the reason we do floating rate, and you might know this, Devin, is, you know, with fixed rate, you have very heavy prepayment penalties, especially right. on 10 fixed rates. Yes. And one of the deals we did, you know, at the beginning of uh, 2019 or at the middle of 2019 was a uh, fixed rate Freddie debt that we sold in November of 2021. We had to pay on that one deal, $3 million in prepayment penalties to get out of that deal. And it took our returns for our investors down from, a, I want to say around a three, three and a half, three, 3.6 equity multiple down to just the 3.0 3, 3 equity multiples. So that was, you don't want to lose 60% of the profits just then and there. But, uh, you know, that was the right thing to do for the property just because it was uh, the best time to sell. Uh, but we learned our lessons, you know, it's it, our, our business model is not to hold a deal for 10 years is to hold right. it for 18 to 36 months and then try to sell it if we can. And if not refi and hold it for a couple more years to cash flow it. So fixed rate 10 year debt doesn't really kind of work with us. You know, the, those are such beautiful loan products, these Fannie and Freddie products in every respect until you're ready to get out of the pool and yep. they, they rip your eyes out and it just, it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's tough when we were looking at deals and I'm sure you guys were, I don't know, last year. And it was just assumption, assumption, you know, it's a $20 million ask yeah. uh, with the assumption. Okay. No assumption. They need 24 million. And it's like, you know, you're trying to overcome a $4 million prepay. It's just oh, yeah. really tough. I've always been a fan of variable debt for, for that reason. You want, you want your, you want your exit. You know, I mean, a lot of these times we underwrite five years and you're out in 28 months and um you know, that, that those pre those prepayments can, can really get you. So it's definitely a balancing act. We've, we've enjoyed some step down prepays with some Freddie yeah. products where, you know, you've got kind of a fixed, maybe it's, maybe it's two points at exit, but uh, two points of the, of the loan balance on a deal that you've forced some appreciation on in the scheme of things is, is not, um, oh, yeah. you know, it's not going to tank you. So it's, it's tough that we have to pick, you know, between a, a fixed debt and easy exit, but that, it kind of seems to be how all the loan products shake out. Yeah, no, for sure. I uh, definitely agree. I think it's, I think variable rate is good as long as you have good protection on the back end. Um, right. it, it doesn't make sense to just have variable and then just don't buy an interest rate cap. It's an added expense on the front end, obviously, but you know, you never know what's going to happen in the future. So you don't want to just get caught with that, with no protection. That's right. And it seems like in my experience, most of the lenders kind of force that anyway, or they're requiring rate caps, which, um, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, I was buying rate caps a year ago. didn't think that, uh, we'd go up two points and, you know, hit our ceiling on it, but it's a good thing they're there. Yeah. So on the acquisition side, you know, how are you guys treating this? Are you bringing in layers of pref equity to get your leverage where you need it to be? Are you guys just looking for a better basis going in or how, you know, what's the, what's the approach in this, in this particular market? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, we have done a couple of pref equity deals in the past, and honestly, they've kind of left a bad taste in our mouths just because of the special member rights that they that they want. Yes. Um, you know, we we know the market very well. Obviously, we're not experts. Uh, you know, so we don't know what the market did for the past hundred years, but we know for 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 the foreseeable future where it's going to go. Uh, so we know. You know, we one of the deals we did. At the end of 2020, um, we sold in, in at the beginning of 2022, um, uh, and we had pref equity on there. And uh, and honestly, it, you know, most of the time during the hold period, they stay out of the way. Uh, 
they don't have any issues. They just want some standard reporting. They ask some questions. That's fine. Sure. Uh, but if they have rights to, you know, um, authorize a sale or decline, you know, offers here and there, that's when you start running into trouble. Because, um, uh, you know, for us, it was a great time to sell in January of of this of this year for that specific deal. And and our pref uh, partner was just telling us like, yeah, you know, I don't want to sell. It's it's a good deal. Let's just hold it for longer. And it's like. We're telling them you're going to double your money in 12 months and you want to cash flow at 7%. Like, think about that for a second. Right. uh, I'm paying you pref for the next eight years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, um, they, you know, ultimately we uh, uh, arrived at an agreement, you know, internally and we had to pay them some extra capital just to get out of the deal and and sell the deal and get a great return for our investors, which worked out really well, but we paid, you know, out of our own pockets to, to the, to that pref partner, just to let them sell, let them or have them let us sell the deal. Um, So with, when it comes to pref, we're very picky. Uh, You know, we're not going to go in and, and give someone just special member rights and say, Hey, you get to uh, authorize a sale whenever you want. And we're going to bring in, you know, 90% 90% of the equity ourselves with our investors, because that puts our investors in a bad position. Sure. And, you know, we, we, we then become the bad guy if we can't sell after 18 months with a great return. Um, so we're actually just raising money, you know, straight on from equity investors right now. We're not doing right. any puff. Um, and I think the market kind of justifies that as well. And I don't know if you've seen it on your end, Devin, but, uh, you know, for our, um, our lenders, you know, they're starting to become more and more, uh, they're off doing more and more scrutiny across all our assets. They're asking more and more questions. And I think on their end, they're just scared, you know, cause they know some, someone's going to default soon. So they just want to yes. catch it before it happens. Yep. And, um, you know, even the pref partner that we were working with, um, they very they weren't very curious about the different operations, but they would ask questions here and there. I can guarantee you, if we were still with them, uh, we would probably have to send them a report after a report of what's happening at the property. So um, it's it it'll get uncomfortable, you know, for some uh, sponsors out there that have bridge debt and have pref equity partners, and we've already heard some horror stories in the market where pref equity partners are saying, according to section X of you know this agreement, you are supposed to do this, and you're in default, et cetera, et cetera, and it's it's gonna you know cause some issues in the going forward. So. Um, we're staying away from PREF for a little bit uh, just because we know how they operate and we just don't want to be under someone's thumb. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and I appreciate you kind of sharing that with the audience because I think all of us are trying to figure out the capital stack right now. I mean, the fundamentals of the market are strong. Rents have grown so much. Rents are high. The, the demand for ha- for this housing product is high basis might even be better than we've seen in a long time. You know, it might be an opportunity to, to buy at a better price. It's just getting that capital stack to, to yeah. work. And, you know, it's tempting to want to layer some pref in there, but um, it's, you know, nothing is without its, its, uh, its, its drawbacks. I mean, uh, so that's interesting. Yeah. So you guys are looking really more for, Hey, let's find value on the basis. Let's mm-hmm. try to get the, you know, the bank terms as good as we can get them in this climate. Yeah. Um, and then what are your thoughts on, you know, getting into a deal now with maybe a better basis and then, you know, maybe in a couple of years, you're in a better refinance. If you go in really low leverage and a high interest rate, you could still get it to pencil, probably yeah. a good candidate in a couple of years to refi at higher leverage, lower rates, right? 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, like our strategy has always been if we can achieve at least a 1.8 equity multiple net to the investor after all our fees and carried interest and all that, yep. we're going to sell the deal. You know, it's yep. no, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to hold value in there. And especially if we can do a 1031 exchange and move into a larger project and sure. help you know, double the money again. But if we can get to a 1.8 equity multiple in the first 24 to 36 months, we're going to definitely try to sell the deal on that point. But, you know, let's say the market hasn't recovered to where we want it to be, or if we just can't hit that number, we're, we're going to refi. It, it doesn't make sense to hold, again, you know, if we're, if we're taking 50% leverage today, and then uh, 24 months later, we can refinance and give back at least 50 or 60% of the equity, we're going to refinance. It doesn't make sense to keep holding it there. So, you know, in our value add plans, as long as we're executing our plan efficiently and making sure that uh, we're not, um, you know, just kind of spending money just because we're running around with our hair on fire. We're adding value, increasing NOI, and uh, you know we'll refinance if that's the that's the step we need to take. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, definitely a lot of options, and we've got to be nimble as operators as the market yeah. changes. You mentioned yep. earlier starting the property management company. Is that are you vertically integrated on your your whole portfolio right now, or what does that look like? Yeah, so we started our our PM company Rise Forty Eight Communities in December of uh, last year, and. Okay, yeah, we started uh, at the time, I want to say we had about 13 assets. Um, I might be wrong, uh, but uh, we had uh, quite a few assets with our third party PM. And, you know, the one thing we had noticed is we're very, I guess we helicopter our PMs. You want to make sure that we understand everything that's happening, sure. uh, ultimately, because we're responding or reporting to our investors and we want to know what's going on, right? Um, so, uh, in December, you know, we kind of flipped the switch and said, Hey, you know what, we're going to bring management in house. And, and the main reason was we've no, we noticed quality staff at our sites were being picked off or being, uh, reassigned to different locations. And right. we had nothing we could do. Well, we, you know, we yelled at the PMs that we told them like, Hey, we need these people here. And the only answer we got was like, Hey, sorry, you know, we got to do what's best for the overall company company as a whole, the third party. And, and, you know, if they're getting picked off because of benefits, we can't offer benefits to the staff. It has to be through the PM company because it's their employees. And, and um, you know, those PMs just didn't, didn't offer benefits or just didn't offer competitive benefits. So uh, we went in with the mindset that, hey, you know what, our peril is going to be heavy. We understand that. But we need to make sure that we hire right and we keep retain the right employees. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to offer competitive wages. We're going to offer competitive benefits. And, uh, you know, whatever we can to kind of keep those employees there, we're going to try to do, um, especially on the um, on the training side. Uh, you know, yes. a lot of PMs, they do not offer a lot of good training. You'll hire a new community director that'll come in. They'll do onboarding, maybe spend a day on, on training on how the software works and off you go, you know, to the to the side and best of luck, figure out how the portal works. And if accounting team is upset with you, figure it out, you know, do it yourself, understand how move outs work, et cetera. And, you know, it's uh, uh, running a PM company is a lot more difficult than people people imagine it to be absolutely yep yeah building those you know uh trainings and building those operations and, and procedures it takes quite a bit of uh time and and effort to do so you know our uh i think at the beginning of uh well around february of 2021 we had one employee uh in our company outside of zach robert and myself right at the end of 2021 with all the on-sites we were almost sitting 100 
And then as of right now, we have about 150 employees. You so, can't have 150 employees when we, not have we didn't have a true HR person until December. So yeah. there was, uh, you can just imagine the turmoil internally that we were trying to go through. But uh, no, I think overall it was, it's been a learning experience, definitely. Um, but, uh, you know, we're slowly kind of getting to a point where we're stabilized, have good infrastructure in place. Um, and, you know, we're trying to be as helpful as we can for the onsite. It's like, if I have to step in and review payroll, I'm doing that right now because we sure. don't have a person, right? So, right. Um, and then our, you know, our regionals are stepping in, our, our um, VP of ops is stepping in, you know, we're trying to keep a tight knit community um, as we build out the structure, because we know the moment you have a gap in any of that process, that's when that's, that's going to just widen and widen. So we, we, we try to keep it uh, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, at 12, 13 assets. I mean, you, you've got a reasonable amount of money going out every month in fees that make it a little more palpable to start the company. I mean, the property management company, nobody starts it to make money, right? I mean, it's good to be profitable, but it's all about asset performance, but at a dozen assets, there's a reasonable amount of fees, you know, to, yeah. to go out and cover your corporate overhead. Um, yeah. you know, at least out of the gate. And then now you've got the control. I mean, it, there's really no right answer. I mean, you talk to a million operators and they, they've built it. They've got, there's an operator in Houston that just went back to third party with 5,000 doors. I was kind of scratching my head. Like he built yeah. this whole company and yeah. now he's going back. And so, you know, there's no clear cut answer. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the I, control I, is yeah. undeniable, right? The level oh, of control yeah, yeah. you have now. And that's, that's why we did it. I mean, it just, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's unparalleled level of kind of insight and control. And yeah. um, have you guys taken on any third-party clients or it's just all rise stuff that you, you manage your own stuff? Yep. No, it's all rise. Uh, we don't do third-party property management and, and, you know, with regards to like profiting, you know, like it's, I would say communities makes up maybe 5% of the, like the group's overall profit level. Right. Uh, majority of the profits are coming from the acquisitions and we know and understand the way that the company really kind of makes money is when we buy a deal and when we sell a deal, the, right. the whole management side of things. Yeah. It's, you know, it'll keep it afloat, but it's uh, we want to make the real, you know, everyone gets bonuses essentially based on acquisitions and dispositions. They're not going to get bonuses on a monthly NOI basis uh, or giant bonuses, I guess, based on that. So yeah, um, yeah we, we, we've had investors tell us like, Hey, are you guys doing that just to increase your profit margins and stuff? I was like, Oh, if you only knew yeah. <laughs> the, the amount of work it requires to make a dollar in the PM side. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> that is the, you know, I, I don't know why on earth you'd start a property management company. If you weren't also doing the private equity side, I just yeah. such hard work. <laughs> you can make it profitable. Any business needs to be profitable, but I mean, yeah. it is, it is like, uh, it really requires that private equity sister company. And, you know, oh, yeah. we, we have the same setup, you know, my COO runs P and L for the PM company and for the private equity company. And it's like, these are yeah. just night and day companies. Oh yeah. Well, you have like a 1% profit, profit margin and you have a 90% <laughs> profit margin. It's like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. 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 But it all works together and it beats yeah. in, in some cases, beats having third party. Oh yeah. You know, you've been through the experience. You get a third party manager regional telling you, uh, take a break, man. We got it. Everything's fine. And you just, oh, yeah. you just get, it's like they're professional, uh, bullshitters. Right. And oh yeah. For sure. You can't, you can't, you can't sustain like that. 
Oh yeah. No, we've had uh, like the reporting that we started with, with a third-party PM was just so, I'm, I'm an Excel guy, you know, I, I understand how numbers work. So I can, like, I'm, I need stuff to be linked out. I need to know like, Hey, if you're going to hard code a number, I need to know where this is coming from. And yep. all of their reporting was just hard coded numbers. So, Oh my gosh. Copy uh, you know, paste. First, I know the first, just few weeks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the first few weeks we did like, uh, uh, you know, our weekly calls with them. It was, it was just like, okay, where'd you find this number? And they go into Appfolio, they'll pull the report and obviously the numbers never matched. And I yeah. was like, all right, I actually built out their report for them. And I said, okay, these are the reports you're gonna run. You're gonna add these tabs and this is gonna automatically pull this. So this is gonna send me next time, okay? So that way it's a little bit more comforting. So I'm not sitting there like hoping that this is a number that's gonna end up on the PM report a month down the road. Yeah. And then did you invoice them for your consulting work? You I wish. should have. <laughs> you get to build their reports and pay them a, a fee. It's like, exactly. geez, yeah. it's insulting. Oh, yeah. uh, so now you can build all that, you know, to your heart's content exactly as you want yeah. and have your, have your team execute on it. So that's, uh, that's really yeah. good. So are you guys, um, how do you, do you set targets annually or are you just always looking at deals and striking where it makes sense or how, you know, how do you guys plan for, for capital? You got a lot of investors that are, that are looking to place capital in deals and how do you kind of match? map capital with deal flow. That's always kind of a, you know, a balancing yeah. act there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if I had that figured out, I would be sitting <laughs> in New York somewhere and uh, just, yes. uh, you know, drinking wine all day. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a game at the end of the day you have to play. Right. So we're obviously we're in transactions, right? So it's feast or famine. If there's a lot, of, if there's a glut of deals out there that make perfect sense and they work in our model, we are going to 100% pursue those deals. Yep. I remember back in like, I think end of 2020 when the market was just getting really hot. Um, like we we didn't have a lot of earnest money at the time, you know, like we're trying to go out and buy deals and we're scrapping together every single dime we can find to put a deal under contract because we know this is a time to strike. Yes. So if there's a good time to strike and we, you know, we understand that this deal is going to make sense. What we do internally is we're going to build out a timeline of the deal itself. So we know exactly when the DD is going to get done, when the PSA is going to get executed, when we're going to go out to raise with investors, when the docs need to be signed, when the funding needs to be done, when, when the close of escrow will be. And we'll build that timeline out and say that, okay, well, if we're going to take a deal under contract today, this is when we're going to launch. This is when we're going to go ahead, or if we're going to, uh, if we're going to, you know, pursue a deal today, this is where I'm going to have a PSA executed all the way to this is when there's going to be close of escrow. So if the timeline matches up, we'll pursue that deal as aggressively as we need to. Um, but if the timeline doesn't match up, no matter how good the deal is, we obviously we don't ever raise for two deals at once because we don't want to confuse right. our investors. So that yep. makes life a little bit easier. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Good strategy. Oh yeah. But, uh, I think in March, for instance, we had 10 deals under contract at the time, uh, and all those were in various stages of escrow. And then, uh, you know, in, in July, I think we, we didn't have any deals under escrow at the end of July. Uh, and then in August, we got two deals under escrow and now we have one deal under escrow that, uh, that we're pursuing. So we'll project out the timeline for the next three to six months based on the deal volume that we have. And, you know, we pursue everything we can. Uh, we just, uh, I was talking to Zach about this the other day. It's because uh, he was asking, you know, does it make sense to continue to pursue deals? Is it, should we hold off? And I sure. keep telling him, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good price to buy for, to buy any asset out there. You just got to make sure 
that you're underwriting conservatively enough and that, uh, you know, you're not putting in projections of like, you know, 20% rent growth in year one when the market's not at 20%, you know, you want to, you want to pull back some of this. Obviously, if the deal is in a great location, it's like, it's a gem. Uh, you do want to pursue it aggressively, but again, you want to pull back on expectations because you don't want to tell investors you're going to hit a two X in 12 months. And then, you know, in reality, that was never going to happen. So, um, we're still pursuing, you know, every deal we, we find or get our hands on, we'll, we'll, uh, Zach and, and Robert will go drive it. They know the locations very well. And, you know, if it passes a location test, we'll underwrite it. And, uh, if, uh, if we can hit our number for our investors, we're going to try to pursue it as best, as best as we can. That's it. That's the name of the game. And in some ways that's quite simple. You're, you got an equity multiple focus. Yep. which takes into account the hold period. So, you, yep. you know, it's, it's all there. And if you can reverse engineer and hit your equity multiple, it's um, a lot of work to, to get there, but it makes your oh, yeah. criteria simple, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Now we know what our investors like, you know, in terms of returns. So uh, before we even, even pursue a deal, you know, we calculate out approximately how much money we need to raise. And, you know, if we're not going to be able to raise it, we're not going to go stupidly go out and, you know, put the deal in a contract and scramble to find the equity. Right. Uh, we know we're pretty comfortable in the, in the knowledge that, Hey, we're going to be able to raise the equity for this deal. Okay. Now we're going to pursue it as best as we can. Right. Yeah. Great approach. And that way, that way you you got certainty of execution and the sellers appreciate that you're protecting your, your reputation. So um, just Phoenix focused right now. Do you, is it any other assets anywhere else? Yeah, no, just Phoenix for now. So we right. bought, uh, as of today, we actually closed escrow today. Uh, we bought 37 assets in total. We've gone full cycle on 11 of them. Um, so we have 26 under management now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're all, obviously they're all doing really well. The two that we just recently brought on, they're Freddie Mac floating rate loans. So, um, you know, there's no significant risk of any sort of bridge loans uh, uh, there. And then, uh, you know, with the 11 that we've sold, uh, all have been in Phoenix. Um, they, uh, you know, we achieved a great, I think just over a 2.1 equity multiple for those deals in about 18 months. Um, so they've been phenomenal deals for us. And, and we just, uh, you know, right now we're, we have some deals we're ready to sell. It's just, we're waiting for, you know, the, the market to kind of pick back up. So sure. we're just cash flowing them, uh, waiting for, uh, you know, an opportunity to strike. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, Bikram, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your story and the, the company's yeah. growth, really tremendous amount of growth and, and kudos to you guys for being able to bring that property management. And that's a tremendous undertaking there. Uh, and continue to continue to buy deals. Uh, 37 deals is, is really impressive for, for a handful of years. So wish yeah. you guys success moving forward. If someone listening wants to learn more about what's going on with you guys and what you're doing in Phoenix, what's the best avenue for that? Yeah, no, thanks for having us, Devin. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, the best way to kind of find out more about us would be on, on rise 48 equities website, uh, www.rise 48 equity.com. You can reach out to me at Bikron at rise 48 equity.com uh, as well. And, you know, it, it's, it's not just like Zach, Robert and I doing everything. It's our entire team that's doing everything, everything from accounting to finance, you know, they're, they're all now such an integral part of everything that we wouldn't be here without them either. So, you know, it's, it's all on onsite teams all the way up to operations and staffing that that's kind of helped get us where we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll down to the description, click right through and go check out Rise 48 Equities website and get to know the team. Uh, Bikram, thank you so much. It was great catching up and uh, wish you guys a, a good closeout to the year here. We'll catch up soon. Awesome. Likewise. Thank you so much, so much, Devin. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.